Now this morning's reading is from Acts 14. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who, used, who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from everything worthless, sorry, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord, in whom they'd put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they'd preached the word in Perga, 
they went down to Atalia. From Atalia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they have now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Now we're going to look a bit more closely at Acts chapter 14. And on the service sheet, there's an outline for where I hope to go this morning. Uh, As we begin, though, let me lead us in a prayer. The Lord Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we pray, our Father, that as we reflect on Paul and Barnabas's work in these cities we see today, that you would strengthen our ability to participate in that work. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you ever find yourself asking the question, why is evangelism so hard? I don't just mean the content of evangelism, but why do I get that kind of pain barrier every time I want to share the gospel. I remember when I was back in the secular world working in my workplace, I would get so fired up after church on Sunday. But then on Monday morning, when I wanted to share what I heard with people, there'd be that little voice in my brain saying, careful, Rob, Uh, you don't know what people are going to think of you. And of course, in our culture, particularly our British culture, it is very difficult, isn't it, to share anything uh, particularly enthusiastic about Jesus. Uh, See, in British culture, it's okay to be into things, but not over-enthusiastic. One author uh, describes an unwritten British rule of the importance of not being earnest. So it's okay to like Jesus, but we're not to be too earnest. See, evangelism is very difficult, I think, in our culture today. And that creates a bit of a tension in us, doesn't it? Because as we've been seeing through the book of Acts, there is no more important issue than the gospel itself. See, more important than a COVID vaccine even is the news that Jesus has come, he's died, he's risen again, and he offers forgiveness of sins in his name. That is the message that our friends and neighbours need to hear. And that can create an internal tension in us because on the one hand, we are convicted that the gospel is important. But we fear the response we're going to get. That's why I think this chapter this morning is so, so helpful. I found it helpful and I hope it does help you this morning. Because this chapter is all about showing us what it looks like to proclaim the gospel. You'll see that the proclamation of the gospel, or as it's called here in our Bibles, the good news, is really the heart of this passage. See, look at verse 7, where we read, they continue to preach the good news. Or halfway through verse 15, uh, Paul says, we are bringing you good news. Or verse 21, they preach the good news in that city. See, here's the idea running through the whole chapter. It is this proclamation of good news or the gospel. 
And in this chapter, we see three things about that gospel. First of all, we see that the gospel divides. Secondly, we see why it divides. And thirdly, we see what you and me are going to do about that division. See, first of all, the gospel divides. We pick up chapter 14 halfway through Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, Last week, we saw Paul and Barnabas uh, in Pisidian Antioch speaking to the synagogue there. And this week, we move out of that area into Iconium and some other places. Now, we are getting really into kind of full-on Gentile or non-Jewish territory here. Uh, These aren't the first Gentiles to hear of the gospel, but this is the first time it really crosses over into Gentile territory. For a Jewish man like Paul, this would have felt very, very strange indeed. And first of all, he comes to Iconium, uh, which was a high city. It was over 3,000 feet above sea level. But it wasn't just high in its kind of geography, but also in its status, because this was the Uh, capital of the area and it was a very proud and prestigious city it was under Rome but it it, it held on to its Greek roots Uh, and so they were very proud of their kind of intellectual sophistication and in this elite city the gospel is heard and the gospel is received look read on um, uh, from verse one we see that Iconium Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue where they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So you see the point. He proclaims the gospel. Many believe. But the interesting thing is that Luke focuses quickly on the response of the whole city. See, look at verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And look at verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to ill-treat them and stone them. Do you see the point? There's a division. Some believe, some don't. And they join sides with the apostles, with the Jewish opposition. Uh, In fact, that word division in verse 4 is where we get the word schism from. And the point is, there is a huge schism in this city. You can cut it in half with a knife. Some accept, some oppose. And the point is that Luke is showing us this is the effect of the authentic gospel being proclaimed. See, whenever the authentic gospel is proclaimed, it causes division. It divides people. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division, they will be divided. Father against son, son against mother, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's what the gospel does. It divides. That's worth saying, isn't it? That for most of us, that is not something that sits easy with us. Most of us like to get on with everyone. We don't like to create a fuss. I mean, how many of us have sat in a restaurant and it's been a terrible meal, it's been terrible service, we've had a terrible time, and then we're asked at the end, did you have everything okay with your meal? And we say, yeah, it's fine, because we don't like to conflict with people too much. And then we hear that the gospel divides, and it makes us very uncomfortable, 
because we want to share the gospel. Of course we do. But we don't want the division that it brings. But Luke reminds us that if we're to be authentic proclaimers of the gospel, we can't serve two masters. Either we proclaim the gospel and encounter division, or we avoid division, but don't proclaim the gospel. That's worth saying, isn't it? That we're not into kind of antagonism. And the gospel isn't something that's designed to kind of create antagonism for the sake of it. Notice what he says in verse 3 about this message. It is a word of grace. It is a good message. But sometimes even good messages divide, don't they? Uh, The news that war is over is a glorious message. But it's only glorious for those who are victorious. For the defeated, it is a bad message. Or the news of an election victory brings joy to those who have voted the person in. But obviously it brings a division with those who didn't. And it's the same with the gospel message. The gospel message is a glorious, good message, but it divides people. And you and me need to remember that, don't we, as we proclaim it. It will divide people. We shouldn't be shocked when it does. Now, maybe we are a pain in the neck and we, we need to examine ourselves. We shouldn't rule that out too quickly. But assuming that's not the case, well, then just because we encounter division doesn't mean we're doing something wrong. In fact, it's a, probably a sign we're doing something right. We don't have to take division personally. We don't have to think that something strange is happening. And it's worth thinking, isn't it? Paul, with all his graciousness and ability to persuade, is is running out of this city at the end because of the division that's caused. See, as I speak in the office, I should expect some people should be persuaded. God will graciously use my words to bring some people to know the Lord Jesus for themselves. Or that's what I try and pray for. But I also know that many will hear and many will oppose it. As I speak about my faith with my friends, some will be sympathetic and God may even use my words to bring them to know Jesus for themselves. But some will think I've lost the plot and will oppose it. See, this is what the authentic gospel does. It divides people. It divided this city and it still does today. But maybe we're asking the question, why does it have to divide I mean, why can't it be a message that brings everyone together? Well, we see in verses 8 to 20 why the gospel is so divisive. See, in verses 8 to 20, we move from Iconium to Lystra. Now, if Iconium was the kind of height of the social ladder, well, Lystra is right at the bottom. It had a reputation in the ancient world of being a kind of rustic, simple backwater And um, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul here doesn't kind of see those kind of class divisions that often we do. He thinks the gospel is just as much for the elite city of Iconium as it is for the ordinary people of Lystra. And I don't know what your weirdest response has been to presenting Jesus to someone, but I bet it's not as weird as this. Because look what happens when Paul heals this disabled man, verse 9. He says, verse 10, stand up on your feet. And that the man jumped up and began to walk. Then verse 11, we read, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, 
They shouted in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought balls and reefs to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. It's incredible, isn't it? The people see that something as powerful has happened in the healing of this man. And they think that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes. Now, it's interesting uh, because at the time there was a, a myth or a kind of poem in this area about Zeus and Hermes. Uh, apparently, they had come to this area um, in the past and uh, it was the days before Airbnb. So they um, looked for somewhere to stay and they went to a thousand houses and every single one of those houses rejected them, bar one. And so Zeus and Hermes decided to destroy all those houses that rejected them. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Luke as a historian is well aware of all the cultural things that are going on in this area. Because these people seem to be absolutely sensitive to that not happening again. That's why they offer the sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. They don't want to lose their kind of five out of five rating for their hospitality. But something else is worth noticing about their response. See, this is very typical of how idolatry works. See, idolatry is not exclusive. It's inclusive. See, in the ancient world, it wasn't that you only had one God. See, you had many gods for all different areas of life. You had gods for different nations and different lands. And you had gods for different areas, for fertility, for work, for all sorts of things. And so when you encountered a, a new power like they do here in Paul and Barnabas, well, they just include that God amongst all their others. See, Lystra, it's interesting, isn't it? They didn't reject Paul and Barnabas at this stage. They rejected them at the end because they just want to say, well, here's Jesus. Here's another God we can include among all the rest. Uh, years ago, when we lived in London, Claire worked in the East End, she worked in a predominantly Muslim area and we used to spend time with her colleagues and uh, understandably we, we spoke about Christian things and I remember many of them just said, well, we, we like Jesus, he's one of our prophets. Or many of the Hindus would say, well, Jesus was divine, he's like many of the thousands of gods we, we have. See, the idea is you can accept Jesus, you, you just have him as part of uh, your um, pre-existing worldview but the thing we see here is that the gospel is not like that see the gospel is exclusive jesus is not someone you can just kind of slot in with everything else you see that in paul's response look what he does in verse 14 but when the apostles barnabas and paul heard of this they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting men why are you doing this we too are only men human like you we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. See, to tear your clothes was the classic Jewish way of reacting to idolatry. It's our equivalent of pulling your hair out. And why does he do it? Well, because they just haven't got it, have they? They haven't seen what Jesus is and why he's so different to the idols they follow. See, the thing about idolatry is it gives you the illusion 
of control. It, it, it presents an idea that you can sit in a driving seat and you can manipulate the different gods to your own ends. And so in the ancient world, if you wanted your crop to be a uh, bumper, uh, bumper crop that year, you would go to the fertility god and you would offer sacrifices, you would see the temple prostitutes, and the idea is that your crop would succeed. Now, I realize we're in the 21st century. I realize we don't do that with crops. But we do so often think of God in the same way. It's very easy, isn't it, to think, I've got to do something for God. I've got to make a sacrifice. He'll be pleased with me only if I do X. But the thing is, the gospel isn't that. The gospel is the opposite. The, the gospel is not, I'm going to sacrifice for God to twist his arm. To do something for me. See the gospel is a message. That God has sacrificed himself. To give himself completely and fully. To you. For all eternity. See when we see that. And when we grasp that. Well then we see that the gospel can never just be. Something we can stall along other things. It's not a hobby. It's not another world view. See, verse 15, we read that Jesus is the living God. He made the heavens and the earth. Maybe we're listening this morning, and we've never quite seen that for ourselves. We've, we've understood that Jesus is important, and we're interested in what he's got to say, but we've never seen for ourselves that actually he is everything. Everything else in our life has to fit under him. See, it's until we understood that he is the living God, that we won't turn from those things that we often follow. I remember when I was looking into the Christian faith, I was quite interested in Jesus. I, I began to look into what he said. And I remember thinking to myself, well, this would be pretty good for my future career. Uh, I hope to be um, uh, to, to kind of go into public service of some sort. And I, I remember thinking, well, if I'm a follower of Jesus, that would be pretty cool because lots are. But then as I looked into the Christian faith, thankfully God showed me differently. He showed me that actually Jesus isn't just something there to prop up my life goals. Actually, Jesus is my life goal. And I remember having to shift my thinking massively from thinking that this is just something I can use to shape my personality. To actually, this is a God that I need to get on my knees before and confess and follow with all my heart. See, this is why the gospel divides, isn't it? See, if we as a church, we're going out into our community saying, well, this is the hobby we've got, well, that wouldn't cause any division. Or if we were saying that, look, this is a worldview which we think is pretty good, it wouldn't raise an eyebrow. Even if we were saying we think Jesus is great, that he's worth listening to, very few people would disagree with that. But the gospel is this message that Jesus is the living God and there is nothing in this universe that is more important than him. And you can see, can't you, the moment you say that to a world that wants to live under its own terms, well, then that causes division. See, Paul, um, it's very interesting, isn't it? He, he could have said at this point, well, they've almost got it. They think we're important. 
but he doesn't. He chooses to tear his clothes to call out their idolatry. And look at where he ends up in verse 19. Well, they dragged him, uh, they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. See, the gospel divides and the gospel divides because it is so different from the idolatry of our world. Now, the final question I want us to ask this morning is what do we do with this? I mean, sure, the gospel divides, but are we just to kind of suck that up and kind of get on with it? Or is there something else? Well, in this final section in verses 21 to 28, we see that Paul and Barnabas prepare believers for this division. See, notice where they go next on their travels in verse 21. We read, they preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. Now, um, my previous vicar was a geographer. Uh, who taught on this book, and um, uh, my New Testament lecturer at, lecturer at college was also a geographer. And so it's been absolutely hammered into me time and time again that if you're reading the book of Acts and you're reading locations like this, you need to get your maps out and have a look. Now, I've given you a map on your handouts, and I just want you to notice where Paul goes. Um, you'll see that he's gone to Cyprus at the bottom there, He's headed up to Pisidian Antioch, the, the Antioch on the left-hand side, and uh, he's gone to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Now, um, he's going to end up back in Antioch, the other Antioch, on the right-hand side. But notice the direction of travel. See, there, there was a, a route there that would have taken him to Antioch very quickly. In fact, it went through Tarsus, which is his own town. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? He goes back to the city's he's already been to. And it's even more remarkable, isn't it, when you think that Paul actually goes back to the, the very places that stoned him or threatened to stone him. Now, why does he do that? Well, look at what we read in verse 22, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. See, Paul doesn't just create Christians and kind of let them go alone. Rather, he goes back through each of these towns and strengthens them, kind of galvanizes them. He encourages them. It's the same word used for Jesus and the, the Holy Spirit, encouraging them to, to continue in the faith. Why does he do that? Well, look at the content of his teaching. He says it is through many hardships that we enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships. See, that's the message, isn't it, of the chapter. That's what Paul has experienced here. The, the Christian life is not a picnic. It is hard. It brings division, and division hurts. Now, don't hear me wrong. The Christian life is a life of joy, and it would not be swapped for anything else but it is a life that is not easy. Uh, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And in fact, Paul uses this very experience here when he's speaking to his apprentice, Timothy, in the book of 2 Timothy. He says this, you know my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch. 
at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. And he goes on to say this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, because the gospel brings division, it brings hardship. But notice here, here's the key point, Paul's response. He doesn't call us to some sort of macho Christianity. He doesn't say kind of grin and bear what's the suffering you're you're facing. Rather, verse 22, he strengthens them. He encourages them. He teaches them. And in verse 23, we read that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. See, they they teach. They appoint elders. In other words, they make healthy churches because those churches are going to encourage one another in the hardship to come. See, Luke is showing us here, I think very clearly, that the answer to the division that we will inevitably face if we are going to proclaim the authentic gospel. See, the, the answer is not to avoid it. It's not to try and avoid division at all costs. The answer is the church. See, Jesus not only gives himself in laying down his life for us so that we may live, But Jesus graciously also gives us one another in the church so that we may be kept going in the race and make it to that day where we finally meet him in the world to come. See, you and me, we need the church to keep us going through the many difficulties we will inevitably face. Someone might lose a job, I guess, as because of their kind of Christian convictions. And the church will be able to help that person financially, I guess. Or someone might be finding things very difficult because of the opposition they're encountering. Well, people at church can put their arms on their shoulders and say, keep going. Or some of us might lose our momentum at evangelism because of the resistance we're getting. Well, the church is there to to come round that person and say, well, keep trying. See, we we need the church. Here's a huge reminder of why we do. And it's a huge reminder, isn't it, of why we need things at St. Mary's to keep going. See, I realise that now we're entering a new chapter of our life at St. Mary's. And this is a reminder, isn't it, of why we we need each other as we enter that new chapter. Because the gospel divides... The gospel divides because it is a message like no other. But God has graciously provided us, the church, to encourage one another, to keep us going in the race, and to keep proclaiming this glorious message that everyone needs to hear. Let's pray as we finish. Paul's words again, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We rejoice, our Father, that Jesus is the living God, that he calls us away from our idols to embrace him. 
And we pray, Father, that as we do that work and as we call others to do the same, that you would strengthen us to embrace those many hardships we will face. Please help us as a church, Father, to encourage one another to keep each other going as we enter the kingdom of God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.